0: Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. Today I'm talking with Jeremy Firestone, professor and director of the Center for Research in Wind at the University of Delaware. Dr. Firestone is a wind energy specialist and for many years has looked at attitudes and economic preferences related to wind power development. I'm very pleased to welcome Jeremy on the program today to talk about offshore wind development in particular, something that he has looked at in depth. He and several co-authors have new research out this month in the journal Energy Research and Social Science about the intersection of offshore wind development and coastal recreation. We'll talk a bit about that study, but also talk more broadly about the opportunities and challenges associated with increasing offshore wind development in the U.S. Stay with us. Good morning, Jeremy. It's a pleasure to have you here as a guest on Resources Radio.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Great. So I first became aware of your work at a conference on energy impacts that was held several years ago, and it's really nice to have a chance to talk more about what you've been up to since then. But I wondered if you could tell our listeners a little bit more first about your background and maybe just share a bit of how you came to focus on wind energy in particular.
1: Okay. Well, uh, I would say it goes back to uh, high school. Uh, I was a suburban boy, but uh, found my way to backpacking uh, in the Tetons, the Grand Canyon, the White Mountains. And that eventually led me to work on some environmental ballot initiatives uh, in California, uh, which in turn led me to law school uh, and then the EPA in the state of Michigan as a government lawyer where I first worked on energy issues, uh, hydropower. Uh, I wanted to consider these issues from a different perspective, and so I went back to school to study public policy analysis. Uh, I actually did a summer internship at Resources for the Future, where I was given freedom to pursue various topics and ultimately worked on environmental enforcement choice with Jim Boyd and Ray Kopp, which in turn led to my dissertation. So uh, this is payback today. <laughs> Full circle. I love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I've been concerned about human health and climate impacts of fossil fuels, uh, and in 2003, I started working on offshore wind research. Uh, the Cape Wind Offshore Wind Project interested me as there were people, both pro and con, who professed to be environmentalists.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, I think my sense is that offshore wind development in particular is sort of having a moment, if you will. Um, And as a quick intro, I'd just like to remind our listeners of the March 29th announcement that came from the Biden administration related to offshore wind. And the header on the administration's press release reads, interior energy, commerce and transportation departments announce new leasing, funding and development goals to accelerate and deploy offshore wind energy and jobs. Sorry, that was kind of a long headline, but, but there's you know I think that illustrates that there is some momentum behind expansion of offshore wind as an energy source. So maybe let's, I, I guess I want to start with a stage setting question. Um, how much offshore wind is currently deployed in the U.S. and where is it?
1: Uh, so there is a total of 42 megawatts. So most people maybe don't know what a megawatt is, but they know what a kilowatt is from their light bulb. So it's a thousand uh, kilowatts. Uh, there are 30 megawatts uh, off the coast of Rhode Island, more specifically off the the coast of uh, Block Island, uh, and uh, 12 megawatts uh, off the coast of Virginia, which just recently uh, went in. the The Block Island offshore wind project uh, went in in late 2016. There are, however, 29 gigawatts, so that's a, a thousand megawatts planned in the Mid-Atlantic in New England by. 2035, and as as you noted, uh, the Biden administration recently announced uh, a target nationwide of 30 gigawatts uh, by 2030.
0: Okay, so poised poised for growth, I guess I'd I'd characterize it. Um, and it sounds like if if offshore wind is in fact considered a promising resource, given that the U.S. has lots of coastline um, although I'd love to discuss your views on that sort of where the u.s. fits in terms of its um, relative productivity in offshore wind but but maybe let's let's say for the sake of argument yes it's a great place to have offshore wind development why don't we already have more offshore wind than we do why is it a relatively recent uh, in the scheme of things uh, energy source
1: well it's we have a pretty complex uh, regulatory regime. Uh, as, as you noted from the, the header of the press release, there are a lot of federal players, there are state players, there are uh, Indian uh, nations uh, that also have interests along with coastal communities uh, and uh, and other uses of the marine environment like uh, commercial uh, fishing and marine transportation. We, we also Sort of when it was beginning, we ran into a situation of very cheap natural gas prices, which uh, put quite a large price premium because at that time offshore wind was quite expensive. Uh, we don't have a price on carbon. Um, we, we I guess we have a small one with the regional greenhouse gas initiative, but uh, we don't really have a national price like they do in uh, in the EU. Uh, we really haven't had sort of long-term tax incentives offshore wind has a really long planning horizon and so um, the the tax incentives have to match the the planning horizon uh, price until until recently was was uh, quite large but but now uh, we've we've fallen down as low as 58 uh, dollars a megawatt hour um, i would say the the trump administration was not particularly bullish. They moved things forward, but they didn't do so in, a, in an aggressive way. Um, and, and, you know, ultimately, the, the barriers are not really technological. They're not that much economic anymore. They're social and cultural, uh, and those um, are, are difficult as we, as we seek to uh, transform uh, the offshore environment off the East Coast.
0: Mhm mhm just two quick follow up questions so we we really have talked about the east coast is there any possibility on the west coast are there any sort of viable areas where the west coast might be productive
1: uh th- there are um the continental shelf on the east coast is gently sloping uh off the pacific it drops off quite quickly and so you're going to use what are known as floating foundations instead of something that's uh planted into the into the seafloor uh, those are more expensive, more novel, uh, so that is resulting in, in, in some delay. There are potentially uh, a fair number of conflicts with uh, Department of Defense, uh, and those need to be worked out uh, as well. But there, there's definitely interest off of uh, California, some off of you know, Oregon, Washington, and uh, as well uh, off of Hawaii. Uh, uh, there's a couple of areas that are uh, potential for development. I, I, I think we will see those, but they're, they're uh, uh, several years behind what's happening on the East Coast.
0: Gotcha. And you mentioned that fifty-eight dollars a megawatt hour. I wondered if you have any context of sort of where that fits compared to other energy sources, other and particularly other clean energy sources that are really, have really come down in cost. For example, you know, I, I recognize that it's probably different in different geographies. But can you put that in context with anything else that people would, might be familiar with? Onshore wind, solar, anything like that? Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, in in the best locations for onshore wind or solar, you're you're talking, you know. Perhaps twenty to thirty dollars uh, a megawatt hour, but all solutions ultimately are local. Um, we don't have that strong of uh, land-based wind uh, along the east coast, uh, and you know, although it's sunny out today, we're not nearly as sunny as, say, the uh, the the desert southwest, and so. Uh, you know, we, we have to come up with local solutions, and our large resource is offshore wind. Um, it's a little difficult to compare to uh, fossil fuel generation because um, these the offshore wind developers are signing 20-year contracts for a fixed price, uh, whereas we don't know what the future prices are going to be on fossil fuels, whether there's going to be a large carbon uh, adder. Um and it, and it goes the the difference is with with renewables like wind and solar, you pay a lot in capital costs and then not too much in operation costs because the fuel is free. Whereas with coal, uh and natural gas, uh the upfront costs are are not that large, uh, but then you've got a long horizon of fuel costs.
0: Right. Right. Great. This is very helpful. I really appreciate this context here. Um, just one other kind of contextual question, and then I want to dive more specifically into your your latest research and your historical research. But um, you and I have have both referenced kind of the number of uh, players involved in citing offshore wind. The press release mentioned the Interior Department, the Energy Department, Commerce, Transportation. You mentioned, of course, tribal leadership um, and even the Department of Defense. So maybe given that complicated ecosystem what actually is the process how would you summarize the process of getting an offshore wind facility sited in the US at the moment what's the length of time sort of how many how, what are we talking about here
1: um we're probably talking 8 to 10 years uh so it's a it's a pretty long time horizon the offshore environment is different than the land-based one so if we would compare sort of the great land management agencies uh, the, the Bureau of Land Management, the National Park Service, the National Forest Service. Um, while there are some other players in those environments, they they really have management over the lands. And in the ocean, uh, we've got a whole bunch of different players. We don't have a, a we don't have an ocean management agency. We have uh, Department of Interior with uh, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management managing energy we've got you know the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration uh, managing fisheries uh, and on and on so um, the the process once you're in in federal waters which is generally beyond uh, three nautical miles about three and a half miles uh, if you were driving on a, on, on land, Uh, would be you would go through the bureau of ocean energy management or BOEM um they're they're the lead federal agency and they will then coordinate with all these other uh federal agencies but they all have interests fish and wildlife service is going to be focused on birds along with uh, endangered species on the east coast the National Marine Fisheries Service, part of NOAA, is going to be focused on not only commercial fishing, but uh, the great whales and, and here in Delaware, the bottlenose dolphin, uh, as well as some endangered species, uh, as we talked about, DOD. Uh, those issues come up more prevalent when you get down to, say, Virginia, North Carolina uh, on the East Coast. Um, and, and then, obviously, uh, transport, and there, there you really have, uh, although it mentioned transportation um, you know Coast Guard is in Homeland Security so they're a player uh, as well so it's quite complicated Uh, the process uh, for BOEM is four stages there's a sort of planning stage where they're trying to figure out where to locate leasing areas there's the actual leasing and they go through an auction process uh the winner of the auction then uh engages in site assessment that's the longest process that nepa would be involved in 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 there as well so that that can take a uh, a number of years uh and then construction uh will probably take uh two seasons for these these large projects
0: mhm okay yeah that's a good illustration of the the layers of complexity here but but as you noted at the beginning you know some of this isn't at the moment um Obviously that's a lengthy process, there are many players involved, but costs have come down and there is a process. So some of the barriers to actually getting more offshore wind deployment are not about the process and they're not about the cost, they're about perception and, and community relations and, and a lot of the issues that I think you've really focused on in your research. So I'm hoping that we can kind of pivot to that and talk about perceptions of offshore wind development. Um, And I guess maybe I'll start by asking, is it possible to characterize overall perception of offshore wind in any meaningful way? As in, you know, could you say that the public gives it a general (laughs) thumbs up or thumbs down? Um, I'm guessing that's probably tricky to paint such a broad picture. So maybe I should ask the question this way. What factors go into the perceptions of wind energy and how do they differ in various locales?
1: Okay. well, just uh, on a broad brush, I would say the public is is supportive uh and in some communities quite supportive some states you know you might see 80 to 90 percent support um things are you know are more split i mean cape wind when we first did a survey we found a plurality opposed but our second survey found a plurality uh supportive so that's even the most controversial uh wind project so um I would say, you know, certainly a, a strong motivator of support uh, is a vision of a clean energy future, um, and that resonates pretty much across the board. Uh, and uh, for a, a lot of people uh, in the literature, uh, we, we sort of disabuse the notion that people are NIMBYs, that, that this is just about a project being in their backyard but really it, it's more about the impact uh of the industrialization on places uh and people have attachments to places they they have identities that are associated with places there people are dependent uh on these places for livelihoods um and and for a lot of people it will depend on whether they perceive the wind projects as being uh, consistent or inconsistent uh, with their notion of place is it in place or out of place uh, landscape fit you know h- how you you see this if whether you see the wind turbines as fitting with the landscape so there's clearly a, uh, an aesthetic aspect um, fair process plays plays an important role so procedural justice so um, it is quite uh, important. People want to be treated uh, with respect, feel that their, their voices have been heard, that maybe they've influenced the, the outcome somewhat. Um, and so that's, that's a lot of what we see with uh, communities. I think with uh, commercial fishers, um, you know, where we're talking about not a community of place, but also a community of practice, there's, I think, a sense of a loss of culture. Uh, it's not just a job, it's a way of life. Uh, and f- for commercial fishers, they don't see much of an upside. Um, it, it just you know it's just how big is the downside going to be? Right,
0: right. So one question about that, that sense of place, and forgive me, I'm, I'm not remembering the term that you used, but sort of how the wind turbines themselves might fit into the landscape. Um, what can developers do to actually affect that? Is that a matter of putting things farther offshore so they're less visibly impacting the landscape? Or um, what are the kind of levers that, that people can use when it comes to changing how a, an offshore wind development might fit in the landscape?
1: Uh, well, well, certainly, moving them further offshore is uh, one solution. It comes with greater expense, so uh, there are there are uh, trade-offs. Um, their developers are working quite closely with the uh, the FAA on lighting, so that um, if you can reduce lighting, uh, that can be of of benefit. I think part of it is is experience with. With wind turbines too, so we we do now have um, from coastal Rhode Island wind turbines that are about 18 miles offshore, and so people can go there and actually get a sense of what they look like, how often you can see them, when you know when you can't see them, uh, what they look like when you can see them. So part of it is uh, is giving people information, but um, they're they're. Is probably only so much you can do to make them invisible. We can't. We can't make them invisible. Sure. <laughs> that would be and, quite a feat. That yes. would be. Yeah.
0: That would be quite a feat. Yeah. Well, so your most recent paper, the one that I referenced at the at the beginning, um, is actually about offshore wind development and coastal recreation in particular. Another sort of use of the of the place. And so, what can you say just a little bit more about what you and your colleagues were specifically investigating in this particular paper, as well as what you found?
1: Yeah, and I, I'd like to give a, a shout out to the uh, lead author Mike Ferguson from New Hampshire, and and really the second author uh, Derek Evanson, who did who did a lot of the statistical work from Edinburgh. So um, we 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 had a nice team of people working on this, and uh, I, I think effects of, on recreational use, as, as we've seen in other papers, that one that I worked on with my colleague George Parsons. Uh, can be either positive or negative. So some coastal tourists find their experience better, others worse. Uh, And again, it's somewhat distance uh, dependent. But in this particular paper, uh, we applied a a stress coping framework to manage the negative effects. So you have beliefs about the effects uh, on your recreational experience. Uh, If you think it's going to be negative, you might undertake various coping mechanisms such as Resource substitution, you go to a different beach. Uh, activity substitution, you go to the same beach, but you do something different. Uh, or maybe you just avoid going to the beach uh, for for some period of time. And this then will have an effect on both your attitude in the short term and long term, it may change your behavioral intentions. So... Uh, uh, Mike undertook a, a, a systematic internet survey and surveyed at marinas, boat launches, angling locations, and beaches uh, off the coast of New Hampshire. Uh, overall, uh, we found that offshore wind would have a positive impact if you sort of look at the mean experience on uh, on coastal recreational experience. So there was more enhancement than disruption. Um, we then undertook uh, more advanced modeling to measure uh, these effects of of coping and attitudes. Um, And what we found was that the perceived effect uh, on recreational experience had both a direct effect on attitudes Um, towards the offshore wind project or theoretical offshore wind project because there isn't one off of New Hampshire. Uh, And it had indirect effects through the coping mechanisms. So uh, the direct effect was larger uh, and then the negative effect um, was partially mediated by these coping behaviors. And together they explained about 60% of the, the variance in attitudes. One other point, I think we have to caveat this, is that Um, the population was largely local, um, they were experienced, which is, you know, they were repeat visitors, pretty highly educated, more than, slightly more than half were, had a college degree, uh, they were politically moderate, uh, and, uh, not surprising given the population of New Hampshire, they were about 95% white, so, Uh, how this then translates into some of the broader communities we'll we'll have to see.
0: Okay. All right. Very interesting. I I guess, to be honest, I'm surprised that the perception would actually lean towards the positive. I can imagine that it might stay at neutral, but actually sort of increasing someone's enjoyment of coastal recreation, given the proximity to the offshore wind development, strikes me as surprising. So uh, is there anything else you could add about kind of why people would actually feel better about coastal recreation? Does it play into the same kind of desire to see the evolution of a clean energy future?
1: Uh, th- that's what I would, would surmise. And we we found similar things when we did this coastal tourism uh, study from uh, South Carolina up to, to Cape Cod. So um, some people find their experience better. Some people find it worse. And we actually found that around when the wind turbines that are about 15 miles from shore was the point where more found their experience improved than, uh, than, than harmed. Uh, and one would think the, the notion of a clean energy future. So we also know that there's, you know, what might be referred to as geek tourism. So people who might not even go to the beach, um, but uh, would say, okay, this is the newest and greatest, and I'll go to the beach and see what this is. So there, there that aspect of Uh, As well. And then people who go to the beach and recreate may want to see them. And so they may switch to uh, the beach. You're going to have some people who switch to other beaches. um, And it's somewhat of a dynamic situation.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Very interesting. Well, so you've, obviously a lot of your research has involved interactions directly with communities and, y- and you mentioned earlier that engagement with communities is a really important part of successful deployment of offshore wind. So what have you and colleagues found over time, what are some of the best practices related to that engagement?
1: Um, well, I think we you need to appreciate diversity. So communities are different and groups within communities can differ too. I, I think you need to go and talk to people where they where they are so um, you can't just have meetings and say okay show up at my place at seven o'clock on a on a Monday night you've got to go uh, you know if the you uh, go to the VFW hall you go to to you know if, if some local civic organization has coffee when we're all back together again uh, has coffee on the first Monday of the month you go and you and you go and arrange and chat with them uh, so that's so engagement has to be meaningful and not and not diffuse. We have found in in the fishery context that having uh, developers having fishery liaisons so uh, are are quite uh, valuable. So these are people who have worked in in on the commercial fishing side and now are a liaison to the to that community. I know at Block Island they had uh, a resident on Block Island uh, and he sort of serves as sort of a cultural liaison. So having community members working for the developers and as a go between to a certain extent can uh, certainly can help. Um, so those, those are, you know, I I think some of the, the, the best practices uh, that the developers could implement.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and I think that really squares with one part of the Biden administration's plan related to offshore wind development, um, which does point to some additional research needs. They made some funding, or they they plan to make some funding available to, and I put this in quotes here, to, quote, improve understanding of offshore renewable energy for the benefit of a diversity of stakeholders. Uh, The grant funding will support objective community-based research in the Northeast. So it's clear that they're, you know, they're taking this to heart and trying to provide some additional funding for, for folks like yourself. To, to potentially engage with these communities. But are there other areas where, uh, this is one of my favorite questions to ask on the podcast because it's every researcher's favorite question, but where else do we need more research in this area? What do we still need to learn um, that you think would actually help facilitate the, the deployment of offshore wind in the US?
1: Well, again, I, I really think the social dimensions are really the key. Uh, the, we know a lot about the technology. Yes, we can improve it and we can continue to drive down costs. Um, but the social issues are the near-term impediments to this industry. And without a thorough understanding, as I, as I said in the letter uh, in, to science in 2019, of the human context, uh, we may fall well short of realizing the full potential of offshore wind energy. So um, I, I strongly urge that we collect some very good uh, baseline social science data. We're about to engage in a large grand social experiment where we're going effectively from zero to 100 with offshore wind. Um, And to get, we really should be getting some large uh, baseline data across the East Coast and uh, and then going back uh, to individuals uh, over time. Um, You know, I think that we need more research into relationships that people have with places and as well as how they perceive risk um, uh, and we certainly could use a better understanding of how some of the marginalized coastal communities feel about offshore wind. We tend to hear more about um, wealthy communities and their objections, uh, but not too much about marginalized communities so Um, I think that fits in well uh, with the administration's focus on uh, inclusion and environmental justice as well.
0: Yeah, great. Well, Jeremy, this has been really fantastic. Uh, It's nice to hear a little bit more from an expert in this area, kind of what this ramp up of offshore wind might look like in practice. And, of course, all the things that we still need to figure out to really make that viable and, as you said, inclusive for the communities who are being impacted. So it's great. I really appreciate your taking the time to talk with me today.
1: Oh, you're quite welcome. It's been my pleasure. Oh,
0: good. So, yeah, so we'll close the podcast with our our regular feature, Top of the Stack. And in case this isn't familiar to you, basically we just ask our guests to recommend uh, something that's on the proverbial or literal top of your stack. Could be a book, an article, a podcast, any other content you might want to recommend to our listeners. So, Jeremy, what's on the top of your
1: stack? Uh, my stack is quite stacked, so <laughs> <Okay>. uh, <laughs> they, uh, there, there's a, a a new paper out in Nature Energy by Ryan Weiser and colleagues about uh, future wind power prices out to 2050, looking at expert elicitation and trying to understand as well why uh, the experts were wrong the last time in wind power prices decreased much more than they they thought. Uh, Stephen Jarvis has got uh, a, what looks to be an interesting report on property value effects of uh, large-scale wind and solar uh, facilities in the U.K. Uh, and he's made some nice methodological advances looking at failed projects and, and policy. Um, Ken Gillingham, uh, I just came across my desk this morning, has a, a new MBER report on carbon policy and emission implications of EVs. Um, and as an EV owner, I'm, I, I've got a personal stake in that one too. Um, and I just finished um, uh, Augustine Sedgwick's uh, book, uh, Coffee Land, One Man's Dark Empire and the Making of Our Favorite Drug. Uh, and I highly recommend it. And, and I, I, I I, think it, it is a cautionary tale uh, for renewables. Uh, we've recently heard about the, the concerns over forced labor uh, and solar panels. Uh, and there there's certainly concerns about uh, how we might go about uh, engaging in mining for uh, precious uh, metals that are going to be required for uh, batteries. Uh, and it, it really tells the dark history of our, our favorite drug, caffeine. Um, and the protagonist is James Hill. He's an Englishman from Manchester. He finds his way to El Salvador and becomes the head of one of the so-called 14 families, and and for a good deal of the 20th century, these families controlled El Salvador's economy and politics in league with dictators. And to advance development, the government privatized land. It forced indigenous peoples to move to marginal lands or find work on coffee plantations, and the planters uh, systematically created this sort of monoculture of coffee. It had the further effect of transforming subsistence foragers and farmers r- into day laborers. Um, and, you know, we, as some of us know, this ultimately eventually leads to the Salvadorian Civil War uh, that that happened in the late 70s to the early 90s, if my, my memory serves me correctly. So um, I, I, I think it's, as I said, a cautionary tale, uh, a really interesting uh, story. Um, and I, I highly recommend it to uh, the listeners of the podcast.
0: Great. Those are some great recommendations. And we will make sure to, to post links to all of those things. So, well, Jeremy, thanks again. It's been great to talk with you and look forward to staying in touch.
1: Okay. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support Resources for the Future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.